Um, so our next speaker is Mike Smith, who's a Defence Senior Lecturer in General Practice and Primary Care. And without further ado, he's going to be doing a talk on prolonged care in the low-resource environments, which I'm very much looking forward to and which will feed into the talks that we've just had uh, from before. So without further ado, Mike Smith. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for inviting me down to, have, uh, to give you this presentation. Um, I was worried upstairs. I've just uh, gone for a coffee and realised that half the people whose work I'm going to present as my own are upstairs and coming to join us. So that's, uh, that's blown my first base, really. Um, <laughs> good start. So I'll start with a disclaimer, like all GPs would. This is just a little reminder for me. Uh, well, the first thing to say is that uh, most of this is opinion-based uh, research work that I'm doing within the academic department and in some way does reflect defence, but also there's some ideas and things I need to present to defence uh, in terms of my research. Uh, the picture reminds me really that um, no matter how well you plan, um, never underestimate uh, your population's at risk ability to injure themselves in one way or another, and they'll always do it in the place that's least convenient for yourself. <clears throat> so I thought I'd give you a quick taster, uh, normally uh, a chat for an hour or so, uh, but uh, I've been given 30 or so minutes. So we're just going to dance through uh, um, my perspective, really, on prolonged care, um, why I feel is there's an imperative to innovate in this field. Uh, hopefully share with you some, some best practice, some ideas. I don't have solutions, but I do have a lot of ideas. And just give you a steer on some of my current research focus and areas that excite me and I hope will interest you as well over the next few minutes. So uh, I am military GP. Uh, that's not an excuse or an apology. Um, my day-to-day -day job, as you can see, is the usual cough, colds and chlamydia, and if I feel like spicing it up, I might throw in some ibuprofen and some tubigrip. Uh, the reason I put that up or, or make, make that introduction is that um, when people say, what are you specialising, because everyone has to have a specialty these days, and I think my specialty is just being general, and being a generalist comes with a few problems, because my employer likes to send me on very aggressive camping holidays, and whilst I'm in the academic department for the past 15 years, I've probably spent most of my time supporting frontline infantry in one shape or form. So I have to transition relatively quickly into dealing with other types of problems, the catastrophic hemorrhages, the coagulopathy, uh, and the Kazivac problems, uh, particularly of delayed Kazivac. That's not to mention that my talk doesn't cover the, the bulk of my work, which is disease non-battle injury. So we're going to talk about prolonged care in a, in, in a moment, uh, and the challenges I have as a GP, as a non-expert uh, who's out there doing that, and we can discuss in coffee later why it's GPs forward and not somebody else, but that's, uh, that's just the way the military does business. So perhaps if I give you a little bit of a historical context as to why uh, I feel it's important to innovate in prolonged care, uh, you'll notice I call it prolonged care and John called it prolonged field care. That's from pressure from the Royal Navy, because they don't do work in fields, they do it aboard ship. So I've removed the field just to be politically expedient. Um, but if I start you at the 12 o'clock position, in terms of recent conflicts like Afghanistan, we're looking, we really did um, uh, evolve lots and lots of different medical procedures, which I'm very pleased to see are filtering into uh, civilian practice. At the top, of course, is the uh, preparing our troops for combat and everything that we did uh, prior to getting them ready, the training um, that, that got them or took them to the, a place where they could deliver quite excellent medicine. If we move to the one o'clock position, John talked about the tactical combat casualty care. The Brits have a different name for it, but it's basically the initial actions on finding somebody severely injured. And I'll show you some, some uh, graphic evidence later that uh, this was a, a fundamental change in the, the ability to save people on the battlefield. 
What quickly happened in Afghanistan, I'm sure you're aware, is a big shiny bird came out of the sky and a consultant-led resuscitation team um, quickly swept the casualties away uh, to definitive care. And on board, of course, a helicopter was all the latest advancements in terms of um, transfusion protocols or transfusions, consultant-led teams, uh, all the things that we now see in the, 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 the hospital uh, and the ambulance services. Of course, our casualties were evacuated uh, to arguably one of the best trauma centres in the world at the time, uh, and that was Camp Bastion, and there was, of course, Kandahar, uh, where nothing short of small miracles happened, and I was very privileged enough to do three or four months there myself and see truly unsurvivable injuries almost walk away. Um, and then, of course, once that magic was done, they went back to the QE hospital where their, their surgery was completed, and then, of course, to the world-leading uh, Headley Court in terms of rehabilitation. The one phase that was missing out of that, that Afghanistan didn't provide, was the prolonged care piece, because on average the helicopter came and took people away in about 54 minutes, I think is the average, Chris will correct me. Um, well, yeah, which is amazing. Um, you wouldn't get that in the centre of Birmingham if you were shot, to be perfectly honest. Uh, and so yeah, the, the joke used to go around, it's probably better to be shot in Afghanistan than anywhere else in Britain. Um, but that, again, poses a problem. So for 15 years, we had no real um, pressure to innovate or evolve prolonged care. As a role one doctor, you just overflown often of, uh, a lot of the time. Although there was work going on in the background, as I'll tell you, in terms of improving our ability to do prolonged care. The future world is very different. Um, we are now likely to go to places where we can't uh, uh, enjoy the luxury of having rapid helicopter evacuation. And so um, prolonged uh, evacuation chains and poor medical resupply is probably the norm for people like me, uh, not just GPs, but also our medics, our nurses and our paramedics who'll be working forward in remote locations. And I think this is where I can draw a parallel for many of you who work in equally remote environments during your expedition-type medicine and work in hostile environments. It doesn't have to be someone shooting at you. Um, it can just be the climate or the environment that you're working in. But they all produce adverse situations in which we're trying to deliver best practice medicine. And so this is the, really where the pressure to innovate uh, and, and polish up our pr um, prolonged care has really come from. Um, it was interesting, I heard John speak in the States. He talked about our ability to adapt Afghanistan to what we wanted. We're now in a new world where we have to adapt to the world that we work in, and that's quite uncomfortable for me as a military physician uh, because we've had it on a plate. So, certainly in British military, there is some confusion about what we mean by prolonged care. Uh, a lot of false uh, or fake news about it. So I'll just give you my slant on it, and everyone can have their own definition. It really doesn't matter. But what we're trying to do in terms of prolonged care, as you can read there, is just to maintain someone's physiology so I can get them back to a clever doctor who can, um, who can complete uh, the definitive care that's required. So it's about preventing deterioration. I'm not an expert in, in critical care. I just want to learn to do the simple things and the simple interventions that save lives. <clears throat> You'll laugh. This used to be the comfort zone. 10, 1, 2. 10 minutes to a doctor, one minute to a... One, one minute, one hour to a doctor, and then two hours to definif, definitive care. Wow, you'd say. That's pretty amazing. And that's what we work to in Afghan. And in fact, it went to the 60-minute rule for the U.S., Nowhere, no, no serving person could not be within 60 minutes of being swept back to Bastion. That's a massive comfort blanket to take away um, when we're now talking about we could perhaps replace those to um, 10 hours, one day, two days. So it's a really, really uncomfortable place to find myself in, and many of my colleagues feel the same. Some of you have seen a curve like this. They're published in many papers. I don't want to really get into the, the, the weeds. Um, I just wanted to point out the inflection point. 
The point there where actually training our medics forward, training our, the personnel who aren't even medics to do basic hemorrhage control and airway manoeuvres probably, and the evidence supports this, saved most lives. And you can see the way the curve lifts. But the one thing that was missing from the data, and it doesn't matter how many times you retrospectively analyse the data, of which we have oodles of data, lots and lots, we haven't got any way of extrapolating um, data about long-term prolonged uh, outcome because we didn't have much. So I, have to dig, I had to dig deep back into the past. You have to look at World War I, World War II, Afghan, Malaya, uh, not Afghan, sorry, uh, Vietnam, to understand where people died after that first hour. So the first hour is great. We've got all the algorithms in the world. Matt spoke beautifully about everything a pre-hospital care doctor needs to do. There is that moment, particularly as a GP, when you look up and you think, right, I've done the algorithms, now what do I do? What do I need to do to change the outcome of this person when I can't deliver them to definitive care when I want to? And if you dig through the evidence, the evidence would seem to point to the things that will kill our patients most is shock and uh, end organ failure and sepsis. And this is borne out as well by some of the work I've looked at from the International Red Cross and their wound care surgery manual. The two things they really focus on and they really bother them is the development of sepsis in an already immune compromised patient and also the shock, the end organ failure. How are you going to resuscitate that patient? So in the British military at the moment, and it's shared across our, uh, the, the pond with our US colleagues, we use an acronym along the lines of HITMAN. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with it, uh, it the head-to-toe is really the, what we call the secondary survey. It's the, the time when you are, you've got some quiet time, if that's so, such a thing, to work from top to tail to identify all the subtle injuries, um, areas of wounds that you've missed while you're having the big flap about the limb that's missing or the serious chest wound. Uh, and it will be important, as I'll allude to a little bit later. Hydration, always a problem. If you are a medic who hasn't got IV access and your patient is unconscious, I'll talk, touch on that. And just the general hygiene issues of working in dirty environments. Um, we'll touch on, we have to touch on infection. They have to walk, think about the tubes, about what's going in, managing the cleanliness around those tubes. Challenges around medication. I think the one thing I didn't mention was that we've got a simple rule. If you can't carry it, you haven't got it. Uh, and as a grounding rule, 20 to, 25 to 30 kilograms, I would suggest, is the absolute maximum load a doctor could carry on the ground. So you really have to think about, what am I going to pack um, that's going to make a difference? That was easy in Afghan in some respects, because within an hour, somebody like Chris um, will fly forward and collect your casualty. But if you're there two or three days, you've got to be a little bit more savvy about what goes in your medical bergen. You need to think about analgesia as well, uh, well long-term management of analgesia. It's a real challenge in the forward environments, I'm sure many of you know. And then, of course, get the notes right, the nutrition. And I've highlighted nursing care because the one thing that's fallen out of most of my research is, is the importance of nursing care. Before I move on to that, I'll just talk about some of the key components, I think, uh, of, of worth thought. Uh, and unfortunately, on a 30-minute presentation, I can't really address all of them, so I'm just going to cherry-pick a few, as I say, as a taster. But really, we need to think about hydration, what hydration we take, what we use, um, the, the, the protocols we use, and the end states we're trying to achieve by using hydration. Again, some of my medics can't pass catheters, so then how do you measure how well you're doing your fluid balance? These little challenges that seem perhaps trivial to us, but a real challenge to the medics. Nutrition's a hot topic, when to feed, when not to feed. If you ask uh, 10 critical care consultants, you'll get 11 answers about whether to feed or not to feed. Um, and I'm not going to go into that one. I've took a big sidestep on this one. Um, 
Nursing care, probably the fundamental, um, fundamentally most important thing. Bad nursing care kills patients. And as a GP, I look for simple things that make a difference, and I'll touch on that one. Wound care, again, a really important area. Lots of doctrine about how to clean wounds. Ten to, six to ten litres of uh, normal saline to irrigate a wound. Well, that's my Medbergen full already, and that's just to wash the wound out. What about the hydration? I am delicately going to touch on the world of blood resuscitation. Mindful there's a room full of experts who will shoot me down. But I'm just going to dabble my toe in that one and, and talk to you about some of the ideas we're thinking about. And, of course, there's the medications. There's the documentation, fundamentally important and terribly done on the ground. Uh, I'll say, hands up, it's very difficult uh, to keep contemporaneous notes uh, in some of the miserable places I've worked. Um, and, of course, if you haven't kept contemporaneous notes, it's also extremely difficult then to spot the trend analysis of whether your patient's big, sick, little, sick, getting better or whatever. So patient care. I think the key fundamental point is I'm not a nurse. And like all self-respecting medical students, the second the patient wanted to do a number one or a number two, I pressed the nurse call button and I was out of there looking for the more uh, uh, um, rarest medical conditions I could find that I'd never see again in my career. So I focus a lot on this, and the evidence would support that um, teaching people, and we do this on a three-day course, the, the, the benefits of thoughtful nursing care based on a paradigm um, makes a difference. Uh, understanding that you have to support their activities of daily living rather than getting that surprise at the end of the bed a couple of hours after you've started their care. Moving, positioning your patient. Um, so what we don't want to develop over the course of two or three days are pressure areas, our hypostatic pneumonias, the head-injured patient, how do you position them? Uh, so it's all very, it sounds simple, but it's quite important, things that wouldn't be considered uh, the norm perhaps for some of our medics. Psychological support, never underestimate that. Um, good psychological support will reduce your need for pain management, it will reduce your need for all sorts of drugs uh, if you're convincing the patient that they're, uh, they're in a, going in a good place. And of course... Unfortunately, we don't live in Hollywood, and so preparing our, our medical uh, personnel for the concept of palliative care and of resource management as well. Um, it's a limited amount of resource you carry, and in the best will in the world, you might have to restrict some of that if, uh, if it's an inevitable outcome. So, again, touch on another key area which I think is fundamental, and that is uh, the prevention of sepsis, really, and wound care. Um, so we've been working a lot, and I've been looking at the U uh, a lot of the US work on this, uh, military wounds um, are, are heavily contaminated. That's not to say wounds uh, out on expeditions aren't. Um, but some of the work is pointing to the fact that these colonise within about 10 minutes of the, the injury. Uh, and that's quite fundamental because you used to think you could leave these wounds for a while and get, back, get round to it eventually. Um, but the, the evidence is really pointing towards get in there and get these wounds cleaned as quickly as possible um, to, be, to stop the overwhelming infection and sepsis developing. Now, of course, if you're in hospital medicine, you've got lots of clever things like sepsis 6 and SOFA and MUSE and NEWS and loads of other algorithms I've found in the critical care world. And the challenge is a lot of those are driven by um, hospital-based blood results or, uh, or other types of um, tests, none of which we have in the pre-hospital um, world. So there is some work I'm doing with colleagues to develop... Uh, sensitive scoring systems which will just inform or provide a nudge for the, the medical personnel in terms of where that person is in terms of their bacterial or infection load. Uh, again, fundamental if you're trying to deliver uh, as, uh, as well a patient as possible uh, to my secondary care colleagues. Oh, here we go. 
So resuscitation. So most of you, or I hope many of you know that um, the, the, the British military paradigm for many years has been hypotensive resuscitation. That careful balance between not wanting to blow clots. So I guess I'm talking about the non-compressible hemorrhages, but it was also probably the norm for the compressibles. So we didn't want to blow the clot, but equally we understood that perfusion and flow were really good things, and we didn't want end organ failure. So there is a balance to be struck. And at the moment, we run hypertensive resuscitation at endpoints at around about 90 millimetres of mercury. The current evidence is pushing us, uh, and you'd be probably surprised to know there's not that much evidence to support using blood, which sounds a bit odd, but that's the honest truth. Um, it sounds intuitive we should use blood. You've lost it on the floor, so top them up. And so certainly we're definitely moving towards using blood as a resuscitation uh, product and probably moving towards an endpoint, probably up in the hundreds and 110 millimetres of mercury. Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but we're, we're working towards that as a comfort zone. Um, probably too early yet to see that in algorithms. Warm blood is great. Freeze-dried plasma or fresh frozen plasma um, is probably of choice. Uh, we pioneered this work back in 2009, so um, we've run probably 500 missions now where the GP, the doctor on the ground, was taking blood forward uh, with um, uh, plasma as well. Uh, to be used uh, as a resuscitation product for those seriously ill on remote, um, remote jobs where, uh, where evacuations were well outside the hour that was uh, considered norm. We throw in TXA in the mix there, and I think um, my colleague Chris Wright will talk about that a bit later. And the emergency donor panels as well is work that we're looking at, because as I've already said, um, if, you don't if, you don't if you can't carry it, you haven't got it. Um, but actually we could have a walking donor panel with us. And uh, my colleagues across the pond, the Ranger battalions, have done some uh, outstanding work in, in showing that EDPs can work. And they're, they're certainly on the go in Syria, and they've saved many hundreds of lives by using local EDPs. Uh, so I'm not going to touch any more on resuscitation than say blood is good if you've got it, but the best resuscitation fluid is what's in your Bergen at the time. <clears throat> so... No one size fits all. Uh, there's never going to be one simple solution to our problems. Um, if you ever want to know what a consultant anaesthetist does for the 99% of the time that there's no panic in theatre, then um, this is what it is. It becomes a PowerPoint ninja. So I have to thank um, Professor Tom Woolley for this. This is a shared vision, really, of probably what will happen in terms of uh, us going abroad. It will be a function, really, of the ability of the individual, so their, their clinical competency. It will probably be a function of where we're going, and it will be a function of the logistics support that supports that particular operation. And we'll just cherry-pick based on the threat risk, whether it's a highly kinetic operation, i.e. people are going to get shot, or whether it's a humanitarian-type job. But the idea is we'll put a bespoke resuscitation package together, and then you'll go out with the best fit for that job based on where you're going to go. So I'm mindful of time. So I'm just going to skip on and chat a little bit about where I've taken prolonged care. So you saw the Hitman algorithm, which is a very nice tick box list. And pre-hospital care doctors like tick boxes. But actually, the one thing that falls out from the evidence and the research is we need a process of care, certainly for those of us who are non-experts in critical care. So if I can just allude to in the top sort of flow diagram here, the phase one of the immediate care of the casualty the immediate stabilisation of the casualty, sorting out the monitoring and making sure your, ca your casualty is stable in what we call the semi-high threat environment. The next thing really to do is to move your patient to an area of safety so you can start doing what we call the head-to-toe secondary survey. I know I'm preaching to the converted in the room. But what that does is it produces a problem list. And in that problem list, you're supposed to identify and prioritise what needs to be done. So in this lower loop, with Hitman as the focus, 
We're looking at a one-hour, two-hour cycle of care, just as a nudge, a reminder for our medics what they should be doing within that cycle, because we're not nurses and we're not critical care practitioners. So we need to do some monitoring. We need to capture some trends. We need to put some analgesia and make sure our analgesia management's up to speed and so are the other medications. We need to get amongst the wound and start irrigating these wounds. And the general rule of thumb is if you can drink it, you can wash the wound with it. We need to be on top of our nursing care, our positioning, our activities of daily living, our psychological support. We need to do better documentation that's seen there. That's one of mine. Okay, we need to, from that documentation, trend and analyse what's going on. And we actually need to have a little bit of human factors in there as well, as Matt talked about. Um, if you're one doctor, one medic, and, and 72 hours before somebody's coming to save you, you've got to factor in how you're going to deliver high-quality care to somebody over that period of time. And more importantly, you need to leave the patient alone to recover as well, because constantly being prodded by, um, somebody who, uh, by a, a medic wanting to do good but not quite sure what to do uh, is quite upsetting for the patient. So it's a simple cycle of care that we run within our workshops um, to, to, to help uh, develop that sense of the prolonged care that's required. So in a nutshell, and I'll summarise very quickly, we've got some clinical requirements and we've got some technical requirements. I've skim-flipped through some of the key technical areas that I'm hoping to develop in terms of algorithms with support from the rest of my research colleagues within the academic department. I've got a big wish list of IT things I'd really like to do. And one of the things I've been very keen on is trying to prove the concept um, of remote physiological capture and telemedicine so we can send data back to clever doctors and they can give me some advice about what to do when I'm unsure. I'm also very keen that we have intelligent support tools. We're in that era now while most medics carry a mobile phone or a smartphone um, or, a, or a pad. And so uh, we're in that era where we can build in intelligent support tools. So there's a lot of emerging technology. I've been tracking this probably for about eight, nine years now, but we're certainly at a tipping point. So those sports you can see, or sports, are called jumping from space to sport, but it will be one day. Uh, all of those have got some sort of monitoring technology, as most of you do in the room. And I think we're at that time now where, as a doctor on the ground, a medic, paramedic, um, we need a bit of that technology to help us out. So there's wearables, stick them on your chest, quite clunky. There's stuff that goes on your head, do EEGs, all sorts of stress analysis of the head. We've got implantables, small glucometer devices that will read off basic glucose measurements. We've got hearables, you can pop them in your ear and they'll read off your tympanic membrane, what your O2 sats are, what your heart rate is. And all of those can be fed via Bluetooth to an, to an array of different devices that you can, um, that you can interpret. And of course, you can build into that any number of guidelines that you want into that device to help our remote medic. So I was fortunate, as it always happened, you're in a bar having a drink with somebody, to come across uh, one of six very remarkable women who are at this very moment walking across Antarctica. So after a few more drinks, I managed to convince them that they'd want to wear some wearable technology or maybe even have some implantable technologies. Um, would they be my guinea pigs? I can't really give it too much detail. I'd love to. But this is part of a wider program called, um, well, it's to, for the army in particular, Women in Ground Close Combat. So the bottom line is we don't know much about women's ability to cope in extreme physiological environments over and, and doing endurance activity like this. So it was an absolutely ideal opportunity to wire the ladies up and get some data. And it proves my proof of concept as well, which is I wanted to do some remote physiological monitoring so that it was, um, I could see their physiological state on a laptop on my desk. 
It sounds ambitious, but actually um, the technology is out there. Uh, it just took a little bit of work to pull it together. So all that big stuff on the left-hand side, the kind of clunky stuff we carry around, I found a very clever team to build that device there. And as I tell you in a moment, it's got about seven or eight different modalities of physiological measurement, and it's about the end of my fingertip. Okay, it's about three millimeters thick. It hasn't got the um, hermetic coating on top, which makes it slightly bigger, but it's certainly in the implantable world, uh, very implantable. The idea is, or was, to implant this in the biceps of the ladies, in the same place you put an implant and contraceptive device. Time was against us, as was medical ethics, and unfortunately, I didn't get the implantable sensor in. But don't worry, watch this space. What we did do was get a wearable. And when I joined the army 22 years ago, I never thought I'd be a world expert in sports bras for women. <laughs> but I am. And more dodgily is I had to make some very unusual phone calls to six women and ask them to send me their bras, which um, is a career-limiting choice in the military, I can assure you. <laughs> but some very, very clever people, and I claim no benefit, uh, uh, none of this work, except I gave them the ideas about what we wanted, and some close collaboration with the team at the Hamlin Centre that produced a flexible PCB circuit board. Um, it's about four centimetres long. It's about a millimetre, maybe half a millimetre thick. It's completely flexible, and it will produce all those biometrics, which I think is pretty clever. Um, the good news is um, we got data back from Chile, and this morning I've had my third wave of physiological data back from Antarctica whilst the girls are walking across the, um, the ice cap. How does it work? Using near-field technology. So each of the girls has a smartphone. They walk all day. The device has got a small um, memory device on it. Well, actually, it's enough to capture the whole expedition. Uh, in the evenings, they capture sound bite of the data onto their phone, and then using Wi-Fi technology uh, to an Iridium Go commercially off-the-shelf satellite, we stream the data back uh, to a desktop. It could be done real-time. It's not done real-time, because for many of you in the audience will know um, we don't know much about extreme physiological response, so we don't want to be put in the position of making difficult physiological decisions with data we just can't interpret. So this is called black box, so all the data is going back to the Institute, and we'll analyse it once the ladies have successfully completed um, their mission. I've got one minute left. So that was my dream, really, is to do some remote telemedicine uh, where we can read physiology, we can send it back to experts, and we can have devices which give us an expert opinion about what we should be doing. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much for your interest. <laughs>